Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. So if you're in the middle of a crisis, life is incredibly difficult. You feel that pressure, the pressure cooker of life. And, and frankly, many people have gone through crises uh, throughout human history, but, but particularly last three years have felt really particularly hard. We had global pandemics. We had illnesses. People lost loved ones. People lost jobs. People had to move to find new jobs or, or have their jobs relocate them or, or felt the isolation of working from home, which all of us need relationship. doesn't matter if you're a mega extrovert or a super introvert. We all need human relationships and interaction in order to be healthy individuals. I haven't gotten to know all of you as well as I would like, but I know that you have crises right now or that you will have crises in the future or you've already come through them. Whether it's a divorce, whether it's a bankruptcy, whether it's a foreclosure, um, being, uh, being expelled from your apartment. We all have crises that come in life. You, you get a layoff notice from your boss. Your doctor calls and has really bad results from one of your tests. Uh, your children lose their faith or your children get into an accident or God forbid, someone you love dies. There are crisis points that we have in our lives. What will happen if we consistently choose to rely on God in a crisis? I'm not just talking short-term, because I know intellectually, right? I, I, I've learned the lesson. When I'm in a crisis, when things are hard, when uh, my enemies are bearing down on me, when, when life is too difficult for me to handle, that, that I will call out to Christ, and, and I need to rely on him. But, but that's usually a short-term thing. It's usually like, I need your help right this second, Lord. What happens if we consistently rely on Christ in a crisis? What happens if we continually rely on God when things are going bad over and over again? And I'm not just talking like you go into your prayer closet and you pray and then you come out and no one has a clue you're Christian. I mean like you are relying on Jesus and everyone around you knows it. What happens then? As we continue our journey through the book of Daniel, you'll recall Daniel and... Many of his companions were taken into captivity into Babylon. They were pressed into service, and Daniel ate. I mean, this is one of the most horrifying biblical texts for some of you, because for three years, Daniel only ate vegetables. Just terrifies some of you, like, wow, right? But God made him fat on vegetables. It was a miracle. Nobody gets fat on vegetables. And God, not only because of Daniel's faithfulness to God, God not only blessed him with that miracle, he made him wiser than anyone else in Babylon. And that's where we pick up the story here today. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, 
O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Uh, That weird note in Aramaic, from this point forward for the next uh, several chapters uh, of Daniel, is written in Aramaic, which was a more common tongue than the ancient Hebrew that most of the Old Testament was written in. And I think it's meant to uh, uh, appeal to a broader audience, and so that's why... uh, that's why Daniel decided to record this down that way. But so Nebuchadnezzar, here he is. He's a warlord. He's defeated Judah. He's taken people into captivity. He's separated young teenagers from their families, pressed them into service. Now he has this dream. He, he calls all of his sorcerers and magicians and all of these people, excluding Daniel. Daniel isn't a magician. He's just a wise person, uh, maybe an advisor at this point. But, but he calls them all in and says, I have this dream. Now, those of you who have worked in the workforce for any amount of time, how, uh, how good is your day if your boss comes in very anxious and agitated and fearful of something? You having a good day? No, no, obviously not, right? It's not a good day. So he's fearful and anxious and it's hard. Or, or some of you who are students, right? You've had this, where your teachers are less than gracious, right? How, how good of a class do you have if your teacher's not having a good time? If they, they're having trouble at home, right? Maybe they're having trouble with their spouse. Um, it's not good. It's not good. That's the situation that these guys find themselves in. Their boss, the king, the warlord, is agitated. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, I mean, come on, right? Like they're saying, this is, their request is reasonable. You had a bad dream, tell us about it, we'll do all our whatever and interpret your dream, right? And he says, no, you're going to tell me the dream too. <sighs> And everyone likes to hear about other people's dreams, right? Right. That's, everyone's. <laughs> this is how crazy they know he is because they're like, please tell us the dream. Verse, and I'll lay your house in ruins. Verse 6, but if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Now, this is kind of smart on his side, right? Because he says, well, I can tell you the dream and you can make up anything you want. Right? It's like the dial-up psychics in the 90s, right? Like, just give me a bunch of money and they can tell you whatever you want. No. Tell me the dream first. And if you can tell me what the dream is, then I'll know that you can interpret it for me as well. But this is a totally unreasonable request. It's totally unreasonable. Once in a while, my kids are like, hey, guess what my dream was about? No, I'm not playing this game. Tell me the dream. (laughs) Guess what I dreamed about? Super Mario. I don't know. (laughs) Never been able to play that game effectively. No one has. It's impossible to know what happens inside of a person's dreams. Have you had bosses like that before that put unreasonable demands on your time? Right? They say, hey, you need to meet with all of your clients for an hour today. Okay, I have 30 clients. (sighs) 
how am I able to do that? I had a, a friend back in Michigan and uh, she had a, a social worker and she had, I don't know, something like 48 clients and they expected her to meet with all of them in one week in a 40-hour time period, driving from home to home. Significant meetings. It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't do it. Boss tells you, hey, go build a deck. You know, it's got to be a 3,000 square foot deck and uh, we want it done today. Okay, just me? I don't have the tools. I don't have the $200,000 for wood. I'm sure that's what wood is up to now. Um, I, I don't have the manpower to actually put all this together. Like, it's impossible. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Some of you have had bosses like Nebuchadnezzar, haven't you? It's totally unreasonable. Barbara has a boss like Nebuchadnezzar now. <laughs> totally unreasonable, can't be done in a day. So then Daniel shows up. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel and his friends weren't even in the room, right? But, but these sorcerers, these magicians, uh, the, the, these court advisors, they, they, they tell him, this is crazy. No one can do this. And he's so angry, he gives an order. Kill them and kill everyone else who has a job that even looks like this. This is crisis point, isn't it? This is where it all falls apart. This is where if it, your, your car breaks down and you have no ride, or if you're married, both cars break down because that's the law of the universe. If one car goes, they're both gone. You can't, you can't even carpool, uh, right? This is where that bill comes due that you didn't know and it's overdue and, and you're about to face financial ruin. This is where the medical news comes back about you or your loved one, and it is absolutely catastrophic, this is where your marriage falls apart and you think you have a good marriage and your spouse says, I'm done. It's when your kid comes home from college and says, I don't believe in God anymore. This is when your uh, kid says, I, I want nothing to do with you. Or worse yet, sometimes you have a parent who just totally walks away from their, their child, breaks off all contact. This is where your boss comes in and says, you're done. Right after you made a huge purchase, like a house, you're fired. This is crisis point. How do people respond in crises generally? What do most people do in a crisis? Have anxiety? Drinking? Drinking, and everyone's like, I'm stuck here. This is, this is all that there is, right? And do people respond well in a crisis in your estimation, in your experience? No, they don't. No, like nobody responds well in a crisis, right? People freak out. People yell, people scream, right? Boss comes into, to, actually, wow, 
I think this is God the Holy Spirit popping something, a memory into my mind. I, I remember we had just put a perch, we had just put a down payment, a non-refundable down payment on a house. And the next day, my employer said, we are slashing all of your salaries. I did not respond well. (laughs) Most of us don't respond well to a crisis. What does Daniel do? It says in verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. What? Wisdom and discretion? He's calm about this? I mean, Arioch is like, knock, knock, knock. Daniel opens the door. Arioch's standing there with a sword or a spear or some other various form of murder stick. And he says, hey, Daniel, how's it going? Oh, good, Arioch, what's going on? Hey, um, the king called me and he says, we have to kill you. So you seem like a good guy. Sorry about this, right? And <laughs> let alone that your boss, you know, lays you off unexpectedly. Most of us, if you don't see it coming, we don't respond well. How dare you? Do you know what I've done for this company? How dare you do this, right? You can't slash my salary, everything I've done. I've just put a down payment on a house. You couldn't have warned me. How long have you known about this? Well, we've been planning on this for three weeks. You couldn't have told me a day earlier, right? Daniel, he says, he replies with prudence and discretion. He declared, verse 15, to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So he asks for more time. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Okay, so the... The sorcerers, they ask for, for him to tell him the dream. They ask for more time. He loses his mind and sends out his guards to kill all the wise men, apparently on the spot. I don't know if they're supposed to kill them right there, if they're supposed to escort them to the king and kill them in front of the king. I don't know. But death is imminent. And Daniel goes, oh, okay, all right, I hear the whole story. Let me go talk to the king myself. Let me ask for more time. What? Look, when I was younger, I worked at a welding supply store, actually north of here. I worked at a welding supply store, and the boss there at the time was one of these old-school bosses, right? Like, didn't believe in political correctness or, you know, being fair or gentle or not abusive to his workers. This was a guy, if something went wrong, and it didn't have to be anything big, right? It could be, I remember one time he went off on us because in the back dock, there was a piece of paper crumpled up over to the corner and he left it there intentionally for three days to see if anyone would pick it up and no one did. So he lost his mind, screaming, yelling, cursing, throwing things, not just throwing things around, but throwing things at you, right? And it wasn't a magic trick. If it was coming for you, you better move. That's the kind of boss he was. And let me tell you, when he, when I would, I'm not, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you, I'm not proud of this, but when I'd be up front and I'd be, you know, just kind of doing whatever, and I would hear him in the back screaming and yelling and throwing things. You know what? 
Nathan Norman didn't go up and say, wow, what he's doing is wrong. He's out of control. I didn't go up and live my faith out there. I didn't go walking up and go, hey, you know what? I know you're angry, but let's, let's take a day or two and pray about this. No, what did I do? I hid. <laughs> I avoided him like the plague, and then I waited till my coworker was done being dressed down, and then I would talk to my coworker. I'm like, what happened? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I told a joke. I thought it was funny. He doesn't like puns, apparently. <laughs> I think that's how most people respond, but not Daniel. What happens if we choose to rely on God consistently in a crisis? Daniel goes, oh, wow, there's a crisis. Well, let me go talk to the king, and in the name of my God, let me ask him for some more time. And the king grants it. What? And then Daniel, he goes and he asks his companions, can you pray with us? Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered, okay, hold on, wait a minute. So the answer comes to Daniel. Everyone is about to be murdered. Everyone is about to be murdered. And their houses turned into latrines. I know the text says a rubble heap, but, but really the implications there is that they are going to take Bob's house, they will burn it to the ground, they will put up bathrooms and put a sign, this used to be Bob's house, and now you go potty here, right? That's, that's what, what's happening. This is how angry Nebuchadnezzar is. He's kind of a psychopath. He's filled with rage. And Daniel, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. What does Daniel do? Does he immediately rush out and go to the king? No, then Daniel blesses the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Excuse me, he says, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So if all of a sudden the answer comes to you, right? You're praying and God gives you the answer. The money shows up for the bill, right? The, the, the right person that you have to call to, to release the person from prison, that, that, that comes, right? The answer comes. The, the pill comes on the market that you need to take in order to clear up your medical condition, right? What do you do? You go out and do the thing immediately, the answer comes, ah, here, I'm going to go. I'm gonna. You find the phone number you need. You call immediately. What does Daniel do? He stops and has a worship service. I got to go to church first. Let me gather all my friends and have a worship service. What? Stay of execution. Oh, we got to call the governor. We found new, new, new evidence. The person's innocent. Oh, Let's stop before we call them. I know they're about to flip the switch, but, or whatever they're going to do, but let's stop and have a worship service first. Oh my goodness. What happens if we rely on God constantly in the middle of a crisis? Daniel had a worship service before he went to him, and then he went. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. 
Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember the king changed his name to Buddy of Baal, false god. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Okay, so what's the correct answer here? Yes, is that what Daniel says? No. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Are you kidding me, Daniel? Really? You have the answer? And he says, can you show it to me? And he says, no, I can't. No one can. What you're asking for is impossible. It's the same thing that the astronomers said, excuse me, the astrologers and sorcerers said that wanted to get them all murdered in the first place. Daniel, what's happening? He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Wow. Right, so this is an emergency crisis situation and Daniel chooses, instead of immediately giving the answer, he stops And he says, I can't do it, but there is a God in heaven who can. He chooses to share his testimony, right? Uh, I think what Daniel is doing, he knows his Bible very well. And this is almost the exact same scene in the book of Genesis. When Joseph went before the Pharaoh, Pharaoh was having similar dreams that troubled him. Daniel is brought out of prison. All he has to do is give the interpretation of the dream and he is set free and he doesn't have to go back to that horrible place anymore. And, and Joseph, he stops and he says, you know what? No, I can't tell you, but there is a God in heaven who can, which by the way, Pharaoh is not you because the Pharaoh thought he was a God. I think Daniel is almost lifting line from line. He remembers that story. He says, you know what? I'm going to have the same faith. I'm going to take this crisis situation and I'm going to share the good news about the God of heaven, about the God of all things, about the one true God with the king of Babylon. Wow. And his whole court who's listening. I mean, can you imagine that? That'd be like if you're a firefighter, right? And there's like a puppy inside the burning house. The woman's like, hey, go get my dog, go get my dog. And he's like, I will, I'll save your dog. But first, let me tell you about how Jesus changed my life. (laughs) What? Daniel, he's got an audience. No, I can't tell you. But there is a God in heaven who can. This is what you saw. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of the wisdom that I have. Excuse me. Uh, Verse 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries may known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretations may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. And this is the image that he sees. You can look at the picture as I read along here and follow Daniel's interpretation. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty 
and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, and all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So typically, oh, here. At this point, Daniel can say anything, right? He's told the guy the dream. So whatever the interpretation is, we can guess it's probably not all that good for the king of Babylon, for Nebuchadnezzar. So he can say anything to him at this point. He's got free. What does Daniel do? He tells him the truth, which is even harder because it doesn't end well for Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 36, he says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and in whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation true. So let's look at this a little bit. Theologians will differ a bit on it, but in general, they all agree the gold head is Babylon, right? The current kingdom. And then after that, there's another kingdom that comes, that's the Medo persian Empire. Daniel survives into that. Then the next one is Greece. Finally, Rome, which comes in onto the scene and just obliterates all the other uh, nations before it. But as Rome grows, it begins integrating other cities, states, other people groups. And, and it, becomes, it becomes kind of, uh, kind of brittle because they expand too far and well beyond their control. And then at some point, the kingdom of God comes and wipes it all out. And that rock that, that is hewn with no human hands as it flies through the air, it destroys everything, and then it becomes a great mountain unto itself. So the, uh, oh, let's see. The basic interpret, I think the basic interpretation, most people will agree on the first three. 
Uh, and then there's a question on the Rome and the Rome expanded, but there's a, the biggest argument amongst theologians is what is, what is this? You know, obviously it's the kingdom of God, but some, some of our Christian friends, they'll say, okay, the, this is, you know, after the Roman Empire, then there is a break. And this represents the second coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus when the kingdom of God comes in power and glory and Jesus reigns physically on the earth and all know who he is, right? That, that's what a lot of theologians will say. But there's nothing within Daniel's interpretation that says, okay, and there's four kingdoms, uh, then kind of a fifth one, and then, and then there's a long break in time. And then this happens, right? There's, there's nothing that indicates that. What I think this is, this is the first coming of Jesus, Right? I think this is the first coming of Jesus, because think about it, right? How many of you are Roman citizens right now? When I was in, when I was in undergraduate school, we were talking about what the fall of the, the Roman Empire was, and, uh, and my professor posited, he said, I think it was Christianity, and everyone found that very offensive who was a Christian in the room, like, how dare you think that Christianity destroyed Rome? I, I, you know, in my older age now, I think he was absolutely 100% correct. I think Christianity ultimately undid the corrupt Roman Empire. And the amazing thing was it was not done with weapons. It wasn't done with chariots or swords or predator drones for that matter. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ destroyed the Roman Empire. There are no more Romans in the world anymore. It doesn't exist. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of us are looking for an army. A lot of us are looking for, for, for something spectacular. But the reality is that Jesus coming, dying for our sins, rose again. His gospel that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It has been so powerful. It has transformed individuals. And it, it has fundamentally changed the world. I mean, think about it. Children, the fact that we find children precious and someone that we should protect, that comes from a biblical understanding. That is not a natural worldview that humans have. Look at how the Romans treated children, even their own, let alone slave children. That comes from Christianity. Uh, the, the, uh, the literacy rates in, in, in countries that have, have had the Bible, right, have just shot through the roof. They skyrocketed. Because we believe in education and, and people want to read the word of God for themselves. And so we educate people on how to read and, and, and the hospital system. Why did the hospital system happen? It was because Christians all throughout the world said we should care for people when they're sick and not just say, well, they're sick. We're going to run the other way. No, they're sick. We're going to run towards them. We're going to help them even if it makes me sick too. Christianity has been at its best for the last 2000 years not when we have armies, not when we have political power, but when we love and serve people in the name of Jesus. And that obliterated all of those corrupt empires without an army, without a war. That is the power of the blood of Jesus. That is the power of the gospel. However, I think in almost all cases, prophecies have a, both a near and a far fulfillment uh, especially in the Old Testament. And so I think this, yes, is talking about the kingdom of God is here right now. And it is. The kingdom of God is here in this room. The kingdom of God is wherever you go. If you are a believer in Christ, you bring his love, you bring his gospel, you bring his freedom from the power of sin wherever you go. And yet, the kingdom's not here yet. Theologians say, it is already not yet. The kingdom of God is here in one sense, and it is coming in another sense. One day, King Jesus will come. Every eye will see him. 
and he will set up his forever kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. And it will come in power and there will no longer be sorrow and no longer difficulties and no longer the crises that we have to go through. I think that's the interpretation of the text. I think Jesus came and he changed everything. And when he comes again, he'll change it again. What happens if we constantly rely on God in a crisis? So Daniel gives this and he says to Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is going to be destroyed in a fairly short amount of period of time. How would your boss respond to you if you said everything you work for this company is going to be obliterated while you're still alive? Here's the surprise twist. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So he's basically like the governor of the most important state of Babylon, which we all know in America would be New York, correct? Yeah, that is the correct answer. Um, Verse 49, Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Imagine this, right? Can you imagine your boss ever bowing down to you? I mean, actually on his or her hands and he's bowing down to you because of the good job you did. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you're in school, your teacher, right? You did such a good job on your paper. They're, uh, you know, they pay homage to you. Can you imagine that? Those of you who are homeschooled, maybe, right? Can you imagine your parent ever being like, good job and bowing like, As ludicrous and as impossible as that situation is, it was more ludicrous and more impossible that the king of Babylon, the warlord who thought that he was God's right hand, would pay homage to one of his conquered people. He honored Daniel. And that honor only came because Daniel was faithful to God in the crisis because he relied on God, not just privately, didn't just go into his prayer closet, didn't just send out an email for the prayer chain, which is fine. We should do all of those things. But he said, no, he's going to go a step further. And he lived out his faith publicly. He was in a crisis and he is telling everyone about the one true God. If we choose to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ in a crisis constantly, regularly, out loud, you will receive unbelievable respect. It might not come from your boss. It might not come from your teacher. It might not come from your family. But when we live out our faith publicly, boldly, in a way that we can all get hurt, in a way that is absolutely terrifying, there is honor among honor, respect among respect that we will receive. If not in this life, then most certainly in the life to come. And I know what some of you are here, you're like, oh, you know, I don't know. I've lived my faith and man, it's hurting and it's hard and it's, it's challenged me and it's scary. And I know most of us though, we're not going to lose our, our lives if we are faithful to Christ in public. We might lose jobs. We might lose respect from people. We might be made fun of. Uh, it might be awkward. It might be weird. We're probably not going to be killed, <laughs> And yet, if we choose to be faithful to Jesus, something happens. I think, I know for myself, it's like, 
in the short term, I'll be, I'll, I'm going to rely on Jesus and I'm going to say something and I'm going to pray and I'm going to go tell my boss or whatever um, that, that, that I need to pray about this, right? And then when it doesn't respond well or whatever, then I just kind of like, I, I privatize my faith and I don't want to live as a Christian and I don't want people to know that I'm a Christian. I, I think the problem is, is that many of us don't want to do long-term faithfulness to Jesus. It's hard to do. It's scary to do because you know what? You are in his arms and if he doesn't show up, you are in trouble. I'm pretty young, but in 41 years of life, he's never failed me. I've failed him a lot of times. It's the problem with young pastors. I don't know. Some of you are in here like, yeah, he's a pretty young guy. Some of you are in here like, yeah, he's not young. (laughs) It's the problem with young pastors, though, is we haven't lived long enough to be that faithful and to really rely on Christ in 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 a conflict, in a crisis. Look to the older saints, the brothers and sisters in Christ, who have been faithful when life was horrible, who have lived their faith out, and you can see, like, how much respect do you have for them? So much. And I'm not talking about the people who are on the news. Well, I'm going to say this ad nauseum. Living for Christ does not mean that you are a jerk to other people. (laughs) Being a bold Christian does not mean that you belittle other people. It means that you start with the love of Jesus and you end with the love of Jesus, filled with his joy and his peace and his grace and gentleness and kindness. If you know people like that who've done that throughout their lives, you have so much respect for them. And like Daniel, God will honor you. And if it's not in this life, it will definitely be in the life to come because you remember that, that, that meteorite is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And all throughout the New Testament, do you realize in Jesus' second coming, all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the New Testament, this is what's crazy. I can't explain it any better than this, but if we are faithful to him, Jesus said we will rule with him in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth. We will reign with him. We will rule with him. That, doesn't, that blows my mind. It doesn't go into many explanations about what that looks like. But he says, if I can trust you with little, I will trust you with much. If you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father and the angels in heaven. This has nothing to do with salvation, guys. We are saved by trusting in Jesus, by believing that he died for our sins and rose again, and then our sins are forgiven. It's all on him. But after that point, how faithful are we going to be? How much are we going to rely on him? How much are we going to trust him? And if we trust him, he says in the next life, you have more honor and respect than you can ever imagine. Wow. That sounds a lot like what happened with Daniel here. He was made basically the the governor of Babylon, the most important part of the Babylonian empire. And God promises to be faithful to you. What happens if we choose to rely on God in the middle of a crisis over and over again? you will receive respect. If you rely on God, something good always happens. When we rely on God, we not only survive, we thrive. Let's pray. Father, I know myself, and I, I, if I'm in the middle of a crisis, I immediately go into fix mode. And uh, the first thing I need to do is to pray. The first thing I need to do is to get on my hands and knees and, and rely on you. And then I need to go and I need to live my faith out publicly, 
I pray for this congregation, Lord. They have a much harder job than me. I'm working at a church and working among Christians. You've called them to a more difficult calling. They are working in the world. They are working in a pluralistic society that does not share our values. I pray that you give them wisdom on how to live their faith out publicly, not to cause offense, not to fight, but because the love of Christ so fills their hearts, they can't help but overflow on those around them. Give them wisdom, give them insight, and I pray that as the crisis has come, you will help them to rely on you and to be like Daniel and to answer wisely. I pray for us as a congregation that we deeply, deeply experience the freedom and forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all terribly flawed, and yet we serve a beautiful Savior who loves us, who cares for us. Father, thank you that through Jesus Christ, you care for us, you call us your own. Even when we sin, even when we make mistakes, even when we mess up royally, you call us back and you love us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.